Welcome everyone to the third and possibly final Skyward Sword cast. With me I have again Daniel and Greg. Today we're going to be talking about the overworld design of Skyward Sword. The first thing I wanted to cover with the three main environments is naturally the first time you go into them and the level challenges they present because uh, as each of us have probably noted from our own note-taking the first time around it's a little bit more linear before it actually opens up. So Greg, would you care to take us through the Farron Woods? So on your initial run of Farron Woods, um, you basically you land and you have to go through a small portion cutting down trees and crossing gaps. And once you make it into the the woods proper, you come across a Kikwi that you then have to free from some Bacoblins. And after that, you're able to douse for Kikwis. And dowsing is a mechanic where uh, you switch into a first-person view and your sword, uh, and you hold out your sword in front of you. And it gives you kind of a hot-cold... Um, kind of a hot-cold finding system where you point your sword around in the environment and try to find where some item is. And so the first item you look for in the game is kickwees. You douse for kickwees, uh, pointing your sword around the environment and trying to figure out where they are. Um, and so uh, dowsing will give you the objective direction that a kickwee is on the map, but it won't Point you necessarily to the path required to get to them. Mm -hmm. So a lot of times when you douse, it'll point you right up at a wall and you can't pass it. And so from there, you'll have to uh, find a way around. And so that's a lot of what the first run of the Farron Woods is. Um, finding yourself into a... <clears throat> finding yourself in a dead end and needed to figure out um, okay, my dowsing is pointing me in one way, the level design is pointing me in the other way, how can I make the two agree? Um, and as you do so and you explore the environment, you can um, open up uh, shortcuts for later use. And this is, I think you really only do that with logs that you can roll. So basically you'll mm -hmm. go up to, um, you'll be at the base of a ledge and you can't run up the wall far enough to make it up to the top. And so later on, you'll you'll do some exploring, and eventually you find you're at the top of that ledge, and now you can push a log over, which then lets you run back up. Um, and so that, I think, is uh, the gist of the level design anyway. Yeah, it sort of starts off with that um, Kikwi search mission and then you enter into the back half of the level where there's the giant tree and then eventually you move from there into the uh into the deep woods leading you to the first dungeon and it's kind of interesting in that each through the use of logs and other 
devices, it does kind of gate you a little bit, but there's a still a significant amount of area that you can explore quite freely. Um, and then later on, you know, when you approach this area, like you can just move through it quite easily, you know, because you know the pathways through. When you first get into the Fern Woods, you start off in the left side, around where the sealed grounds entrance is. And the number one I have there is is a gap that introduces the uh, ropes that you use to swing across, and we'll get into that later. Where the the number one is, that's actually the first time where you're introduced to this the swinging rope. Uh, where I put the number two, that's where you have a, a blockade of bamboos that you're forced to uh, cut in order to progress through. Afterwards, you then have about two bokoblins harassing the Kikwi, as you mentioned earlier. Uh, that path off to the left there goes to Lake Floria that you can't even get to because you need a log to get up there, so that one doesn't matter. Ignore that. The number three is the first steep slope in the game that it the player encounters where they will have to learn to use the dash in order to run up it, otherwise it'll always slide down. Uh, and then the next section, and after you push the log down so you can go back up there, that's where you have the section where you're supposed to just catch the Kikwi like three times. There's a neat thing they do where there's one part where he hides behind a mushroom. There are two ways to do this. You can either roll into the mushroom or you can cut the mushroom. Uh, but either way, the mushroom's spores will come out. So not only is it a neat way to, um, you know, no, scare the kikui by uh, hit, hitting things or rolling into them, it's also a way to say that, oh, the environment's interactive and you can actually collect those spores should the player be curious. So it's a neat way to get them to stumble upon something by doing something else. Actually, <clears throat> Sorry, I actually, I actually didn't uh, even realize how the mushroom spores work until later, like quite late in the game. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I tried to make as many marks as I could about the exact positions of enemies. So in that area with the mushrooms, there's also birds there that you can catch. Uh, there's, you know, just Dikubabos in the main path and then one section where there's just two of them. And then you can see on the leftmost, right by the shortcut, that links you back to that number one earlier about the swinging rope. That's where you can go back to the earlier portion with, you know, little travel time. Anyways, the Kikwi is near the tree there. And from there, you can progress on the level. Because if you actually try to go up the the little yellow strip, uh, Fee will actually just stop you and tell you to go back and talk, get the Kikwi. So... You know, there's that. But otherwise, from here on, the level actually immediately opens up. So, if you look where I wrote bombable above the two Dikubabos, you can actually just scurry up there and uh, travel pretty much everywhere else in the map. You can go up north, you can go up, go to the east, where you can scurry up that little steep slope that has the Dikubab on it, and go everywhere else in the map. In fact, you can even find all the Kikwis before you talk to the Elder One. That's how, how much it opens up 
uh, after you pass the number three mark that I make to where you get to that lower left hub area mm. there. And that's good because taking that tightrope challenge again and again is just is not really feasible. <laughs> yeah. So there's a this is the part where I have to mention that I goofed up a little with the numbers. I wrote number six to the because you can't actually tell this from that. This is one of the very few times where the map cannot show you something because it, there's a piece of land above, on top of another piece of land. So I wrote the number six there to show that there's a hole that you can fall into that goes into a tunnel that allows you to find that uh, Kikwi off to the side there because uh, there's no other way to reach them. And that's one of the, the neat tricks. And it's like, oh, this is why dousing is useful because of um, pinpointing its exact location in 3D space like that. Finding it, though, is still quite a quite a challenge. And that hole, I believe, is actually hidden among the grass, too. So you have to cut up grass and see the hole and then go down and find it. Another point uh, that I wanted to mention is, so getting that number out of the way, you can see how there's sort of a, a main-ish path that you can go along where you go to that steep slope to the east and then you go south to where you have to because you have to go around this entire path in order to get to where I wrote the number eight which has the swingy rope in order to reach the elder Kikwi. So you go down this path you fight enemies along the ways such as Bokoblins, the Octrox by that little spring there. Uh, circle around fight some more Octrox and the thing about the number eight and why I marked it is because of why it was so important for you to encounter the number one with the swinging rope because the rope is the same but this time it's attached to the little thing and you have to cut it down and because of the number seven I wrote a little more there's another bamboo blockade so it should get you sort of in like a cutting move to realize oh I need to cut the rope because this is the same rope I used to swing across gaps there's an elder kikwi across a gap on a platform that I need to get through so just like really subtle teaching going on there without saying anything at all and I don't think most mm. people would even catch on to that. I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> so from there, the number nine on the platform where the Elder Quickie, that's just to tell you because it's not easily conveyed in the map that there is a crawl space that goes inside the tree. You then climb up and you tightrope walk onto where the number 10 is. So this is another new level element, which is the tightrope walking and they escalate that challenge once you get over to the the deep woods. Uh, but for now, for this, or at least for this moment in the podcast, I'm mostly focusing on the fair and woods section. Uh, once you get into that east, that eastmost area where, which is pretty, pretty big, and is where most of the kikwis gather uh, on your second trip and every visit afterwards. Uh, there's a bunch of Bokoblins there, and it's also your first encounter. Well, it can be your first encounter. Remember, it's actually pretty open, so this may not even be the first guy you see. But there's a, a Bokoblin captain here who blows horns. Other Bokoblins comes, and you got to fight a bunch of them at once. Now, what I want to know about this section, why I'm kind of trying to illustrate this sort of golden path here, is that that Kikwi is scared and on a tree. So you have to knock him off the tree by rolling into it. Now which was, you know, emphasized with the first Kikwi you found earlier. 
by the mushroom where you have to like hit or roll into a thing to get it to get the guy to come down or you know just to unscare him but then the little coil vine which isn't the same as the swinging rope comes down and that one you find out you can swing on too and that's how you get onto the number 11 there and you roll the log off to get that shortcut down there so you can easily come back there without having to go on the tight walk tight rope every single time so again another subtle little teaching where you encounter that coil rope because that is the same one that you're going to use to slingshot once you complete the Kikui search quest. Yeah, where this big tree is, it's pretty, um, it's just a pretty open area. The path circles around it. Uh, you can see how there's this one Kikui off to the, the top here in order to get to that one. And this is why I wrote number 12 here is you have to go to that left section climb up the grass hop across in order to even get there and then you have to cut off all the grass because he's trying to he's the only one that actually knows how to hide so that's how you have to expose him and then you have some vocablins down in that path below down there and from there the level loops oh and also these light green uh trunk these little light green pieces coming out are actually the trunks of the tree coming out and you can actually go on top of them so that's a, that's another cool use of a 3D space that you can understand from looking at the map. And you can also see uh, where I read the number 13, that is another crawl space. It's interesting how, how um, they actually uh, make use of the, the crawling quite a bit more than I expected even in the overworld. So I just decided to make a note of that. I think another reason why I made note of that crawl space there is because they have a... they regardless of which side you come through there is an ambush waiting for you on the other side so if you come out of one he's like oh crap bokoblins are like right outside of the crawl space if you go if you're coming from the top and going south it's like oh there's an octrog literally right to, off to the side on the right followed by another one further further down uh, and in that area that's also opens out of their shortcut what you'll probably notice is that the lighter something is the higher off the ground and the general trend of the level is that uh, the shortcuts are going from the lighters to the darker so you have to get to the higher ground to push a log down that or yeah, yeah, yeah it's always a log in order to reach it and the Farron Woods is generally getting more elevated the more you move northeast or just to the east so the lowest part of the level is more to the west and the highest part is more to the east just a neat little trend that I found there and how they were designing this and of course, once you find all of them, I wrote the number 15 that shows uh, where you can use the slingshot to uncoil those uh, little squirrely green vines. And there we go. That was really long, but uh, that explains all my notes on the level. Oh yeah, I put a 14 to denote another tightrope section to where you can get a piece of heart. There we go. That's all of it. The you can sort of see in <clears throat> um, how the design of the level is sort of clustered into, um, and the different colors on the map um, point out the different elevations. And so you can see how, again, verticality is used just like it is in, uh, in the dungeons, but it's, it's sort of used to uh, distinguish between certain uh, play spaces. And I guess there is a distinction between the northern and the southern parts, where the southern part is smaller and has more individual play spaces, whereas the 
northern part, as you said, is more open, and then you've got that giant tree in the middle. Um, and then there's that bit on the sort of the far east, which is kind of its own thing. Um, but yeah. I guess it, yeah, there's that as well. And so I think this environment is really because of the verticality and because of the nature of the um, like of the shapes. It's just so organic looking. Um, there's not a lot of really strong physical structures, I guess. Yeah, no, there's not really a lot. Um, I guess besides in the in the north, um, in the northeast, uh, just before the yeah, uh, before the deep woods, um, yeah. And so I found it. It's quite an interesting environment. It's very complex, and much like the dungeons, it can be hard to wrap your head around, even once you've passed through it multiple times. This is one of the reasons why I feel more so than past of. Um comparing it to the dungeons is appropriate. I mean, you've always had dungeon-esque challenges out in the overworld, but not to the extent that it is in Skyrasaur, especially with some of these uh, locking keys and opening pathways to make reaching other areas to make the level more interconnected. Uh, that's usually a feature you typically see in the dungeons, uh, not quite to the same extent in the overworld, but as you can note uh, in my notes, I noted for and then if we include the swings, that's six shortcuts. So that's six points of connection uh, for you to move through the level that mm. aren't there on your first go around. Yeah, it does change. Even even like putting aside the fact that it gets flooded later on and the silent realm, like it just it yeah it changes markedly as you move through it. So um. The other thing I was going to say was, what was it now? I think I lost it. <laughs> One thing that was on my mind was um, <clears throat> um, that uh, replaying this game, I associated the slopes with Elden Volcano because you have a really distinctive setup with archers, and then, of course, it, it plays again in the dungeon. Um and then I was surprised here that there's that one slope, and it's like, what? There's not a slope in Farron Woods, but you know, here it is. It's just like a a little unassuming challenge to, um, you know, I guess just put in the back of your brain how to interact with slopes. Yeah, only only two slopes in Farron Woods, and that's that actually will segue neatly to covering the. Well, there's still more to cover with the Farron Woods before we move into Elden Volcano, but just it just shows that there is a progression uh, of level elements from Farron Woods to Elden Volcano to Laneru Desert even. Uh, you can see where on the right, so the top left one, that's your first time visit. The top right one that I have for Farron Woods, that's making note of, well, not only just like uh, what enemies are changed. For example, in the top, there's a there's a moblin there where the guais used to be that wasn't there before. You can see the location of the Syat Realm, which is what you're looking for when you go on your trip back. So plays back into that dousing challenge again. It's like, oh, where's this thing? Well, you got to go find it. Beyond, and all the Deku Babas are changed into Quadro Babas. Uh, but beyond that, oh yeah, and the some of the red Bokoblins have been changed into blue Bokoblins. I try to make note of where bugs are as best I can, but... Um, it's it's not accurate. Otherwise, mm. the changes in the Farron Woods 
Um, well, actually, I'd say there's those are significant, changing the Dikubaba to Quadrabrabas. So that's just a straight up more intense enemy. Uh, brand new enemies with the Moblins. Um, and the blue, red to blue block of Ben, that's just a more intense version as well. So, yeah, those are some. Those are the changes that occur in the Farron Woods. I think it might be worth uh, sort of stepping back a bit and uh, talking about how <clears throat> um, the different instances in which the player will explore the one environment um, multiple times. Um, so, generally speaking, you know, each of the three areas is a little bit different, but you know, but generally speaking, um, as you've described, um, the player will move through the uh, move through the main environment um, uh, on their first go to the dungeon, and so in doing that, they're quite green, and they will, you know. Um, learn the environment as they go and you know and unlock shortcuts and other things and then they usually go through the same area a second time when accessing the second dungeon in that same uh, section of the overworld and then there's a silent realm um, which is a heavily modified environment and then there's the uh, each environment right near the end of the game has some kind of environmental shift um um, whether it be flooded or the or the volcano erupts, and you know, that much like the Silent Realm is another significant modifier to the uh, to the physical environment and the nature of the challenge um, challenges. And then the player also passes through the environment when they go to meet the, uh, to meet those special dragons near the end of the game as well. End of the game or post game? I think end of the game, yeah. And and so all of that doesn't include the player um, getting stuck, exploring the areas out of interest, collecting bugs and things like that. So so ultimately, you know, the player is going to move through these environments which we're talking about one, two, three, four, five or more times. Um, and that's quite a lot, which is why I think. <clears throat> have been designed so that they can be uh, so that, so that, so that, yeah so that they can be appreciated in different ways each time that they're passed through and and hence you know the importance of why we're talking about other differences oh yeah um yeah just the other thing i was going to say as well was that um the the areas that we're talking about they're mainly the main hubs of these environments. So, if you look at the um, at the Farron Woods, um, if if you look at the map there, you know, you've got the sealed ground, which is you know another area off to the you know off to the left. You've got the deep woods. You've um, off to the east or the right, and then you've got in the south, you've got the um, uh, the Lake Hylia esque level, yeah. um, and, and so, and so, really, I think we're focusing on that main hub environment, which connects the different areas. Um, but also, in saying that, I would say that the individual strands offer the hub. So, you know, like the deep woods um, and the sealed grounds, for example, they are more similar to that, to the short linear lead ups into your traditional. Zelda dungeons, I mean, 
Yes, in a lot of the other games, there's usually a series of of uh, open environment, not open environment, but uh, you know, pre-dungeon challenges that are set out in the main environment. And um, and so these spokes are, uh, and so in Skyward Sword, you know, these spokes are very similar to that. I think the main difference between the Skyward Swords level design and the earlier games is that you is that you have these larger um hub environments which we're talking about which are <clears throat> full of individual play spaces and, and have a lot of collectathon aspects which are designed to have the player engage with the different pockets of challenges within the environment and so it's kind of so so the difference is really the the introduction of these banjo kazooie esque environments. <laughs> yeah. Also, to make one other, yeah, that's why I was mostly focused on getting as many notes as I could on these hub areas, whereas the other ones, like I didn't really need one for Lake Floria because you mostly go through, are only required to go through that once. Same with the deep woods, you only really need to go through that once. So I'm mostly fake it, focused on these big hub areas because these are the ones mm. that are much harder to talk about versus the deep woods where it's just like analyzing any other uh, linear level in any other game just, um, yeah, and they're much less interesting uh, because, uh, you could say that they are much less there's much less to talk about yes yeah it, it yeah, would just be going over a lot of um the same sort of level design analysis we've been doing, but to me, I think there's something more interesting to be found with uh, these hub areas than, you know, say the deep woods. Not that there's nothing interesting in the deep woods, but I, I find most of the most of what makes Skyward Sword so interesting to me is these big hub areas right here. And with that, I wanted to transition into the Silent Realm. So you can see on the bottom right uh, the Silent Realm map, right? Yeah, you can see how much of it's uh, cut off already. Like it's really focused on that northern open area and some parts of the south. It's quite open, which is interesting because I suppose that helps with visibility because this is the first time the player is in the Silent Realm. Mm -hmm. And... Then you also um, see the different light sources and the and where the enemies are located. Beyond visibility, the Silent Realm, just because of the nature of the challenge, um, I don't know that the level design itself is folded, but you have to approach it in a folded manner where uh, you start at one point and you need to venture outward and collect a whole bunch of stuff, and you eventually need to bake it back to the starting point. Mm -hmm. um, and so... Uh, a more open level like this gives you a lot more options for finding paths from point A to point B um, and just makes that foldedness more lenient. Yeah. Uh, I mm -hmm. think it's safe to say that the Farron Woods Silent Realm is the easiest. Uh, both because it's the smallest and in a way also might also be one of the most... Well, I'm not sure if it's the most interconnected. I haven't actually counted that myself. 
but uh, it's definitely the smallest. For example, you here's how I here's how you can break break down the level just from looking at it on the map. So in the area surrounding the tree, you can find two where that temple are, uh, one in the north part where the tree trunks are kind of coming together, one in the top left where one of the kikwis actually was, and then there's one with that uh, waking water, and it's not evident on the map, but what you're actually supposed to do to get that is to climb on the log, walk over it, and then get it. Oh. I actually should clarify something else with these maps. EG means Earth Guardian, SG means Sky Guardian, and W means Watcher. So that's what those mean. So if you do, you know, run out of time, this is the locations of where each of the chasers are at. Further where that crawl space is, that's where another tier is. So just from there, just like around this tree area, that's already six six tiers. And if I remember correctly, you have to collect only 12. So that's already half of them down. There's another where the heart piece on the tightrope on the trunk is. So that makes seven. One where that little drop down hole is. That's again by the tree. That makes eight. Yeah, 12. Uh, further to the south where the little green coil vine that, that you use to swing across to reach the Elder Quickly, which is blocked off, by the way. Uh, that's where another one is down on the steep slope where the Dikubaba is that's where another tier is there's a cheeky tier kind of hiding off on the uh, cliffs that which you would actually use to climb up to the the tree area and then you can really say there's only like two in this um, bottom area where that where you find that first quick he tries to run away for you and you got to get him to calm down and one of them is in an area with a waking water that uh, fills and recedes so that's the challenge with that bottom one there. Or, sorry, the bottom west one there. And then there's another one outside of the uh, the big tree area by the tree where the to the east of where the big Kikwi, the Kikwi Elder is. The big Kikwi. No, Kikwi Elder is a different one. Uh, there's one like way there on the southwest corner of the map. And that's how you can... Uh, break this down like a majority of them are all around that tree area so if you just go in one big circle you'll stumble upon them uh, fairly easily one interesting thing to note is that there is one ch significant change so while this is you know a big circle it's not a complete circle and that's why I had to make special note of the log by one of them so typically you want that one by the lock to be the last one you find that way you can just roll it off and then run back to the starting point otherwise you're gonna have a hard time if you picked it up didn't roll it off and then you have to go the long way around in order to get back and finish the level yeah it's interesting the i'm just comparing the um, elden woods to the other areas and i was going to say that there's not a lot of the uh, that orangey water in elden woods but there's actually seemingly even less in the in the other areas, like there's not very much overall. Um, I guess the major difference, at least between um, um, Elden Woods and the volcano, <laughs> I can't think of the name. Um, it's uh, Theron Woods and Elden Volcano. Oh, I'm going to say Elden Woods before. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Damn. Um, 
anyway, um, the difference I'm between the two is is just the nature of space. I mean, like you can see within the volcano that you've, in fact, even just the whole area of the volcano is more uh, is like a series of in of of channels which go up and down the mountain, whereas in in the forest it's more like it's much more open and much more wider. And I think that gives the player more flexibility to escape from enemies and to see threats, as we mentioned before. Yeah. And as you say, it does kind of like it does kind of loop around. If you know the area well enough, you can basically move around the other perimeter and mostly get everything. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting to note that um, that log there. Because normally you'd be able to uh, scurry up onto that platform uh, just fine. Uh, but by putting the log there, it is a way how the Silent Realm actually restricts uh, one of the paths of the player. So if you were to generalize the uh, path the player is normally going to go along, it's going to be like, almost like an S shape where you start off on the top right where that green arrow is. You get the top curve of the S, and then you, the bottom curve of the S goes over into that uh, low southwest area. You can, s I don't know if you guys can see it, but that that's how I, I'm kind of uh, looking at it. it. That and the only reason that happens is just because that logs in the way. Once you complete the Silent Realm, that's when you get the, uh, I think it's a water dragon scale that allows you to swim underwater and then you can go inside the tree and scale up it and to go to the next part which is to Lake Floria and then the dungeon. Uh, I guess one other note about these maps is you can see the dusk relics. Uh, dusk relics are kind of a big deal because you can only, well you can't only but find them. There is one other way but it's, but it, you know, costs money. But they, the only way you can get Dusk Relics are in the Silent Realm, so that's why these locations are uh, marked and kind of important. Uh, I did not put down the um, the little beacons that you can pick up that show the locations of the other tiers, uh, because there's way too many of them, and I didn't want to clutter it up, and also just it would have taken too long for me, so those are not included. Instead, I just made notes of the locations of the Watchers and Guardians. And the last note is that uh, I wasn't able to... I, I regret not doing this, but I wasn't able to display which Watchers are the ones that move and which ones are the ones that mostly stay still. Daniel, you remember going into the Fairy Woods the third time and doing the swimming for the Song of the Hero, right? So, um, yeah, and so basically uh, the woods get flooded, um, which sort of makes sense-ish because it's near the lake area. Um, and so this is a, quite a dramatic change in, in the level design, um, purely by the fact that you can now... Add, yeah, that you now have free movement um, to move vertically through the environment and so you can access areas that you technically couldn't access before and hence you know they do what is pretty common in Skyward Sword they you know, drop some trinkets throughout the environment and you have to swim around and collect those things 
which I can't remember what they are. Um, there's a couple of uh, f- fish enemies as well. Um, primarily, there's a giant. I don't know what the name is, but there's a giant fish with the uh, like the wart on its head, which is up near the um, up near the tree, and that will pursue the player if the player is in their sights. Um, but generally, I think you know there's not a great number of enemies in this environment. And it's no. more a case of them just um, using these little trinkets to have the player, uh, you know, once again re-explore the environment, but through a different means. Um, which so, I kind of felt got a bit tiresome at this point, but being able to, you know, but it's so unprecedented, you know, the fact that they oh, they work so hard on this level and then they just flood it with water. Um, just as an excuse for the player to you know, to explore the environment again, um, I thought was quite clever. So um, it's not a you know it's a um, I don't think it's a higher of level design, but it's quite, but it's nonetheless quite interesting. Mm-hmm. Is in, um, sorry, in the simple way that it transforms the environment just by dumping water on it. When you're describing the challenge about collecting tadtones, it's worth noting that um, it is more than just exploring the environment. There's, um, I guess you would call it a dexterity challenge, where um, you're filling out bars on a sheet of music, and so each bar will have so many notes in it, and you'll need to collect the full set of notes in a bar before... It's, like, committed to your inventory. So, um, for instance, up at point nine, you have four that are swimming in a circle, and if you collect three, and then, like, you know, ten seconds passes or whatever, you lose those three, and they go out of your inventory. You need to collect all four within a a time limit. And so you have kind of a... I call it a dexterity challenge, because you need to... that time limit where the tadtones escape from you if you don't collect them fast enough um, that enforces um, a certain amount of skill with gesturing the Wii remote so that you can swim Link accurately enough to collect them within the given time um, and it, it's kind of neat how they layered the different timers there where you have Link's breath and then you have Link's uh, inventory yeah, that's right. Yeah, the you know those limitations do further uh, adjust the challenge and sort of tune it. Which which tad tones to you? Because some of them you know you find from exploring and you engage in your you know your swimming challenge of swim along a path and go through it within a set amount of time. Which of these tad tones or tad tone uh, collections stood out to you or left an impression on you the most? I have a couple, but I want to hear yours first. For me, um, the most obvious one that stood out was the one at point 12. Um, it's a big, long path where you're... Uh, there's also uh, poison bubbles that spawn along the way. Yeah. So um, that one is distinctive just, just because, because of its, its length, length and uh, having, having other, other obstacles, obstacles to dodge, dodge along, along the, the way. way. And... Um, I guess it actually proves that it's not 
the time limit is based on the last tad tone you got. So that, you know, if you imagine it like a <laughs> like a Devil May Cry combo timer, the timer gets refreshed every time you pick up a new tad tone, which is what enables you to go for such a long stretch um, from the beginning to the end there. Any other standouts? I th- The one at point eight uh, got me because... Um, I think it's the only one you have to open with one of the explosive fish. Um, yeah. And so <laughs> um, more than the the giant um, blimp fish or whatever, the guys with the X forehead, mm-hmm. um, the, the blowfish are interesting because uh, that's kind of an aiming challenge where you need to line up... Um, there will be some bombable wall in the environment, and Link can't pull out any bombs underwater. So what you need to do is find a blowfish, and then line Link up so that he's like opposite the wall with the blowfish in between them, and then do the swirl attack into the blowfish. Um, so because it's behind a wall, it's easy to miss, um, because you know, you don't just see it. Um, and it also... I just think the blowfish are interesting. Uh, the one that's marked number one, to me, that was a standout, because it's hiding in a lily pad, and you have to actually go back onto the tree, jump off to and land on it to turn it over, so that you can get it. Uh, that was one of the last ones, uh, the, one of the later ones that I was trying to get because of that. Because for whatever reason, I thought all I needed to do was dive out of the water, land on the pad, and that would flip it over. It's like, actually, it takes more force than that. So that's why that one stands out to me. Um, the ones that you mentioned were ones that also stood out to me. Other ones were numbers 13 and 10 just because they're kind of hiding in the grass so that's why uh, those caught my attention because uh, when I found them I was like oh you thought you could get me but I found you because <laughs> I could see them in the grass <laughs> uh, number 11 because that one is inside the tunnel that you can't see on the map so actually yeah it, it lines the tunnel there because that's the one where you go down the hole uh, to find the one of the kikwis so 11 was another one, um, and again, more used to that 3D space, so simply just swimming around along the ground, uh, along the entire map, isn't going to help you for that one. Same with number 16, because that one is actually inside the tree uh, that you climb up and tightrope aqua- tight walk across in order to get to the area where number 17 is. Uh, I'm not saying 17 is a standout, just pointing out the, the tree. And what it's connected to. And I think there was one more. Oh yeah, it was number seven because that is one that's not actually all the way in the bottom. It's it's a little bit higher up, but um, you know, it's actually uh not hard to see. So yeah, those are all the standout ones to me. Now that you describe the process of finding those I'm uh I'm remembering how weird it was to use dowsing in this to 
find some of the ones that weren't immediately visible. Mm -hmm. um, normally, dowsing will give you the uh, straight direction that something is in, and you'll have to work to find the path. And so there's some, you know, there's a separation between uh, what the dowsing tells you and what you need to actually do. Yeah. And that is exaggerated here because you can't douse underwater. So you'll need to swim up to the top um, and stand on some dry land above the flooded forest. Douse up there, and it'll point you to a general area, and then you'll need to dive back down and kind of uh, remember what you were pointing at on your way down. <laughs> yeah. Remember how I marked all the shortcuts on the first map? Those are yeah. all the points that you can stand on in order to douse. So there's only four of them. Uh, in addition to the lily pads that the other Kikwis are standing on. So not only are do you have all the difficulties of trying to understand where they are in 3D space with the dowsing that you're describing, but there's not even that many places for you to stand <laughs> in order to do it. Alright, so that about covers the Farron Woods. Uh, this last podcast is quite a long one, so what I'm going to do is divide it into three parts. So in part two, we'll be talking about the Elden Volcano. <laughs>